of the Lord Jesus Christ as we consider for a second time God's dealings with Zechariah and Elizabeth in verses 56 to 66 or verses 57 to 66. But I'd also like to jump back this morning as well to consider this whole narrative as we uh, look at verses 18 through 25 and the significance that they have on verses 57 through 66. So as you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 verse 18, let us turn to the Lord one more time in a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the Christmas story, for the stories that it inspires as we think about all of the literature and all of the music and all of the hymns and everything that has been impressed upon our people and our culture as we think about this Christmas season. Father, what a glorious story it is that we were lost, that we were dying, that we were enslaved to our sin. And you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into humanity in order that he might live a perfectly sinless life, that he was not tarnished by the original sin of Adam as he was born of the Virgin Mary, in order that he might offer once for all a a sacrifice that covers our sins. Father, as we trust in that message, as we believe in what Christ has done for us, may we take it to the nations. May we declare his praise and his worthiness to all that we encounter this Christmas season whether it be neighbor or family or friend, or even the strangers that we encounter on the streets and in restaurants and stores. Father, would you embolden us to proclaim the good news of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ? We're so thankful for it. Would you be with us now? Give us an extra measure of attention as we give heed to your word, and would you impress it upon our hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Story, tells the tale of one Ebenezer Scrooge, a self-interested, miserly businessman whose only purpose in life is to greedily amass his own personal fortune. On Christmas Eve night, the ghost of his late business partner, Jacob Marley, visits Ebenezer. He warns Ebenezer that if he does not change, he will end up just like him, burdened by the eternal weight of the chains of his greed and selfishness in the life to come. Throughout the night, Ebenezer, whose name means God is my helper, receives three visitors the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, who show him the effects of his sins on those closest to him and even his ultimate demise. This changes Ebenezer, and he wakes up on that glorious Christmas morning with a new heart and a new spirit. He goes from caring only for his own needs to caring for the needs of others. 
He embodies the Christmas spirit and gives to the poor those whom he had just rejected the day before. Furthermore, he goes on to give his only employee, Bob Cratchit, a raise and sends him generously a turkey for Christmas dinner. A Christmas carol is a story of the hope of redemption. It shows the transformation that the quote-unquote spirit of Christmas brings, and it bids us all in its own fashion to live in light of Jesus Christ and what he has brought to the world. Now, obviously, Charles Dickens did not come up with this theme himself. Every story ever told borrows exclusively from the biblical narrative. The themes of redemption and generosity and salvation are the glue that holds the biblical story, and every story for that matter, together. You see, beloved, God is a God of redemption. God is a God of infinite generosity. God is a God of outstanding mercy and grace. And so to tell the story of Christmas in any one of its forms is to tell the story of God's redemption. And we see a vignette of this redemption in the Lord's interaction with Zechariah. Now, in order to see the Lord's redemptive mercy to Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think it's important that we read the whole story of Zechariah together. So let us begin our time together going back to our initial introduction to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and then we'll pick up the story again in verse 57. I trust that you have turned there in your Bibles. We will begin in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, that is the angel Gabriel, who has declared to Zechariah that he will have a son in his old age. Zechariah says to that very angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Jump down to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. 
and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. In order to tell this story, I'd like to organize our time together around three headings. The first is the privilege lost. The second is the promised fulfilled. And the third, the privilege restored. And so if you're following along on the insert in your bulletin this morning, our first point to consider in this narrative concerning Zechariah and Elizabeth is the privilege lost. The privilege lost. This whole narrative is important because it shows us the grace of God in Zechariah's life. As we have noted, Zechariah is righteous before God, living and trusting God and being obedient to all his law. But what we have found out through this story is that Zechariah is not perfect. He makes mistakes. And the first mistake he makes is doubting the Lord's promise. Allow me to remind you of Zechariah's words after the word of the Lord was delivered to him through the angel Gabriel, God's chief messenger. We find it in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. If you remember, there's a tone of doubt in Zechariah's voice as if the promise could not be fulfilled because it was impossible for he or his wife to conceive at such an old age. And this doubt brings about dire consequences. Notice those consequences in verses 20 and 21. Gabriel says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. What we find in our text for this morning is that Zechariah loses the ability to testify to the grace of God. Because of Zechariah's unbelief, he loses the privilege of being a vessel of God to proclaim the goodness of the Lord in keeping his promises to Israel and even to the world. These events are used by the Lord to impress upon the audience and us this morning a very important message. When we doubt the Lord we naturally lose the privilege of testifying to his goodness and grace. This couldn't be any more glaring 
than in Israel's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, Luke is preparing his audience for the rejection of Jesus by those who were intended to be the Lord's megaphone of his salvation to the nations. You see, beloved, God always intended for his people, those who are called by his name, to be an instrument of proclamation of all his glory and his goodness to all the peoples. God's people are to be a trumpet that sounds the note of salvation within the nations we are called to. We are to declare and pronounce the message of his mercy and grace to all those whom we encounter. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 6, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin, says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Psalm 96 verses 1 through 6 says this, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Here is a marvelous reality, beloved. The Lord uses us to declare his marvelous salvation to all the nations. What we find here is that God has brought to Zechariah the salvation that was promised in the Old Testament and that which he was so desperately waiting on and he doubts the Lord's goodness. In so doing, he loses the privilege of declaring it, at least for a time, to his family, friends, and neighbors. And it would seem that this direct judgment upon Zechariah was intended in part to picture the judgment of God upon the nation Israel. Because Israel rejected their Messiah, they lost the privilege, at least for a time, to be those who spread the good news of God to all the nations. Paul alludes to this in Acts chapter 13, verse 44. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like this morning. Acts chapter 13, verse 44, where we see Paul's final interaction with the Jewish leaders as he declares the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 13, verse 44 says this. The next Sabbath, 
Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Beloved, the intent of our experience of salvation is that we would go out and declare it to the whole world. Israel rejected their Messiah and therefore they lost the privilege of declaring the Lord's salvation to all the nations. And so instead, the Lord uses the nations, the very ones that Israel was to be a light to, in order to be a light to everyone else. And beloved, there are times, if we are honest, when we are not too far behind Israel. You see, the flesh refuses to give the Lord the honor that is due His name. The flesh refuses to give the glory to God in anything. The flesh desires to take all the glory for itself. Surely this was Israel's problem. They did not see their need for a Savior. They believed they had it all together. They wanted a king to advance their own ambitions, but they did not want a Savior. And the old man in us would much rather find solutions than trust in a Savior. Here's the reality. The consequence, both naturally and directly, of rejecting the Lord's provision and disbelieving the Lord's promises is losing the privilege of proclaiming Him to the nations. Just think about this practically for a second. If a doctor comes to you and says, we have a brand new treatment for cancer, and it will go in and eliminate all the cancer cells that are in your body. Furthermore, it has the remarkable ability to identify only the cancer cells, and so it will maintain all your good cells and only eradicate the bad cells. Now, if you were to turn to the doctor and say, that's all right, I don't believe you, I think I'll just continue to live with the cancer. By natural consequence, your decision to disbelieve the doctor and to not take the remedy robs you of the opportunity to sing the treatment's praises. 
But on the flip side, if I were to say, I believe you, doctor. I trust you. You have never done me wrong. You have always come through for me and have always had my best interest at heart. I will take the treatment you recommend. And after the first week or maybe the second or the third, you begin to see dramatic improvements. You see, the treatment that was promised to save you from your cancer are diminishing the cancer cells within your body. And when you discover this reality of the treatment's effectiveness, what is the next natural thing that you are to do? Well, naturally, you praise the doctor and the treatments. But not only this, you tell all of the cancer patients that you know about this miraculous cure. For you want them to enjoy the very benefits of this treatment as you have. Now, of course, this illustration only goes so far, but I trust that you can see my point of connection. To trust the Lord and his good promises is to experience the blessing that the Lord brings and to proclaim his goodness to all the nations. I remember when I first trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and he freed me from the slavery to my sin, both its penalty and its power. You know the first thing I did when I left the church on that Wednesday night? The first thing I did was I went home and I told my mom what had happened. But more than that, I told her that she could too experience the very salvation from her sins that I had experienced. And then I went out to the highways and the byways to my friends and my neighbors, those who I had associated with in the past, who had known the slavery and the bondage that I was in because of my sins. And I declared to them as well the salvation that the Lord Jesus offers. You see, to trust in the Lord and to receive his salvation gives us then the privilege to go out and declare that salvation to all who will listen. Now what we know about Zechariah is that the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to him and his family and even to the nation was a long time coming. Nevertheless, that time had arrived and Zechariah doubted the Lord when it was time. And for this, he received the just consequence of his unbelief. The Lord directly takes away his ability to proclaim the good news of God's salvation. He could not tell a single soul of the goodness of God because the Lord struck him mute. He could not sing the salvation of the Lord. He could not declare his glory among the nations or his marvelous works among the peoples. He had to remain silent. 
Surely, beloved, the Lord is calling us in this instance not to be like Zechariah, but instead to trust in the Lord and to declare his goodness and power to all the nations. And although Zechariah lacked belief in the abilities of God, this did not stop God from fulfilling his gracious promise to him. What we notice is that regardless of Zechariah's unbelief, the Lord still fulfills his promise. Our second point for this morning is the promise fulfilled. We have seen the privilege lost. And now we see in verse 57 the promise fulfilled to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Notice it with me. Luke 1 chapter 57 says this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The Lord promised Elizabeth would have a son, even in her old age, and a son she had. This is a miracle in and of itself. For a woman to get pregnant at such an advanced age, after being infertile her whole life, was a long shot indeed. But for her to carry to term was even less probable. This may be why she hid herself for what seems to be her whole pregnancy. And yet, the Lord was faithful. The Lord preserved her. The Lord watched over her. The Lord maintained the state of Elizabeth's womb and brought forth that which he had promised. For the word of the Lord never fails. Isaiah 55 verse 11. Hear this, beloved, and take heart. In spite of Zechariah's doubt, the Lord was gracious to him and fulfilled his promise. Which shows that the fulfillment of God's promises do not necessarily depend on our ability to comprehend or even to accept them. The history of Israel is replete with those who doubted God's power and yet God still fulfilled his purposes among mankind. Think the parting of the Red Sea. Think the manna in the wilderness. Think Gideon and his 300 men. Zechariah needed to believe God's promises for his own sake, and so should we. But God is not dependent upon man to fulfill his promises necessarily. Hear this, brothers and sisters, for it is important. Israel's rejection of the Messiah or your friends and neighbors' rejection of Jesus says nothing about Jesus' intrinsic power to save. God still fulfills his word in spite of the world's unbelief. Romans chapter 9 verse 6 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Whenever we read a narrative, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is why the author, in this case Luke, included this story in his account of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe one of the reasons is because he is seeking to confirm in the minds and hearts of his audience the true nature of Jesus Christ. Imagine yourself in the first century as the apostles are spreading the word of the Lord. Imagine all the doubt and disbelief and the rejection of those around you. Luke's intent is to confirm for you and for me that it doesn't matter what the nations do with the Lord Jesus Christ It does not affect his ability to save. The point of the story of Zechariah and many other stories included is that Jesus' true nature does not depend on what we or anyone else thinks of him. Jesus is true in and of himself. Just like God is true in and of himself, regardless if the pagan nations recognize him as such or not. Hear this. If no one believed in God, it would in no way take away from the reality of his existence. For God exists apart from us and exists independent of us. For he is the self-existent one. He does not need us to confirm his existence. Now we affirm it to our own benefit, but our recognition of God adds nothing to his glory. Beloved, even if you are the only one in the room or in your family or at your workplace or in the state or in the world, or even in the universe, even if you are the only one that believes that Jesus is the Christ, this makes God no less real, and it makes Jesus no less a Savior. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Here's the reality, beloved. God is real. Jesus Christ saves. The Spirit of the Lord transforms regardless if any of us or any of them believe it or not. Now why is this important, you may be asking this morning. I think it is extremely important in our day and age. You see, most in our culture are convinced that they determine the reality of a thing. That they are the arbiters of what is real. 
that their truth and their narrative is what matters. Furthermore, they require everyone else to believe it and accept it as true. So not only are they determining truth for themselves, but they intend to dictate truth for everyone else. I believe I am such and such a thing, and you must believe that I am such and such a thing as well. Now, to be honest, this shows the fragility of their own grasp of reality. You see, if I am required to confirm your reality in order for it to be true, it goes to show that you probably don't really believe it either. Because you need my affirmation in order to make what you claim true a reality. And beloved, this worldview often overflows into the church and our understanding of God. If the culture tells us that we are the determiners of reality and the church accepts this notion, we begin to believe that there is no real objective truth. That we can accept what we want concerning God and leave what we don't like. To be honest, we begin to say things like, what works for you works for you, and what works for me works for me. But beloved, this is simply not true. The only thing that works is what God has determined to work. The only Savior of the world is the one whom God determines is the Savior of the world. The only way you can be free from your sin is the way that God has determined you will be free from your sin. And it is to repent of your self-righteousness and trust in the Lord and his good work to save you. You see, beloved, you cannot serve two saviors. Jesus is who Jesus is. Regardless who affirms it. And beloved, we are called to search the scriptures. To determine and submit to who he reveals himself to be. Now this is not to say that we won't disagree on certain points of scripture. We certainly will. But beloved, someone is right and someone is wrong. There is only one truth. There is only one Savior. There is only one God. There is only one Spirit. There is only one way of salvation, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. God told Zechariah that he would have a son. Zechariah responds by saying, in essence, it is impossible, for I am too old, seeking to project his own reality onto God. God was right, and Zechariah was wrong, and we should be thankful for that. 
Beloved, the Bible says that the heavens and earth are being stored up for judgment by fire. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 and 10. That God is a consuming fire and that he will bring judgment upon all people in relation to his son. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. The Bible says that Jesus will return and slay his enemies with a word from his mouth. That he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 through 16. The world tells you that will never happen. The world tells you that God is too merciful. He is too loving. He is too gracious for that ever to happen. Or maybe even more than that, the world tells you there is no God to answer to. But beloved... Someone is right and someone is wrong. And who determines who is right and wrong? God determines. God determined and promised that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a son. And no matter their level of doubt, we find in verse 57 that Zechariah and Elizabeth had a son. God determined and promised that he would send Jesus into the world to save sinners from the righteous wrath of God. And no matter our or Israel's level of skepticism, God sent Jesus into the world to save us from his wrath. That is a fact. And he is calling on us to believe it. But more than that, beloved, to take the message of his exclusive salvation to all who will listen and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins. Even in this Christmas season, the Lord is calling us to declare the goodness of the baby Jesus, not to shy away from the message of Christmas but to fully embrace it and to praise the Lord Jesus Christ in response. Finally, and very quickly, we see not only is the privilege lost, not only is the promise fulfilled, but finally we see that the privilege is restored. Notice it with me in verse 59. Verse 59 says, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke blessing to God. We find in these verses as that Zechariah, after nine months of contemplating and meditating on the goodness of God in salvation, for he was deaf and or he was dumb at least and possibly deaf throughout that whole time, which we see is indicated by them signing to him. He now embraces the Lord's plan for his life as it's fulfilled and immediately. Upon this act of faith and obedience, Zechariah's privilege to proclaim the Lord's salvation is restored. And the first thing that Zechariah does 
is he praises God. He blesses God for his mercy and grace. Zechariah's lapse of faith did not indefinitely disqualify him from proclaiming the Lord's goodness. Much like Peter's threefold denial of the Lord did not disqualify him from serving in the Lord's army. But as Zechariah trusted the Lord in this act of faith, he is restored and his powers of tongue returned and he praises the Lord. Beloved, here we learn that God is not only a God of grace, but also a God of redemption. Did Zechariah doubt the Lord? Yes. But this didn't affect the promise of God's love and mercy to the priest and his family. God was faithful. And as Zechariah recognizes the Lord's faithfulness in the naming of his child John, he is given the opportunity to return to a position of praise giver. And he records a most beautiful hymn to be preserved for all of history to enjoy. Just like a coward is turned from a denier to a preacher or a murderer to an apostle, Zechariah is turned from a doubter to a hymn writer. And beloved, maybe that is where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you have often doubted the Lord's promise and power. Maybe you have denied him and denounced him more times than you'd like. But the Lord is not finished with you. The Lord is calling you this very moment and every moment forward to trust his goodness, his power, and his grace and to take the message of the gospel in the power that he provides through the spirit that indwells each one of us and to proclaim his goodness to all the nations. May we not cower in the face of fear, but may we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ inside of us and may we go out with full confidence that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us. We are so thankful for this message of salvation. We are so thankful that we are privileged this morning and every morning to give praise to your name. We are so thankful that each one of us can leave this place and declare your goodness to all whom we encounter. Father, my prayer for your church, for these gathering of your disciples in this place, that you would grant them boldness to speak the message of your salvation. That as we interact with the people that we run into throughout this Christmas season, that you would give them the words to speak, that you would bring to their remembrance the truth of your word and your gospel, and that they would proclaim it without fear and without intimidation. Father, would you bring about your spirit upon your people, and might we go out from this place and declare your goodness to the nations and sing praises to your name. We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in your name. Amen.